Let me ask you to consider a word that we say all the time, especially in church, but we throw it around a lot. The word is God, but I want you to consider the fact that God is actually sort of a generic word. What I mean by generic, I mean it's kind of like when we say person or house or car. God isn't a specific word, especially if you think about the first century world. Unless somebody was a Jew, chances are they believed in lots of gods. So if you said the equivalent of the word God to somebody in the first century world, they would think you need to be a little bit more specific. Which God are you talking about? But even now, for most of us that live in a world where most people believe in one God, God can still be sort of a generic, abstract sort of word that we just sort of use for whatever it is that that we want to believe in or do. People say things like, well, I think God is leading me to do this, or what's God's will for me, or what does God want for me? People have used God as an excuse to do all sorts of things in their lives, personally. Nations and empires and countries have used sort of an abstract idea of God to do all kinds of atrocious things to one another. Who is the God? God, the God, Yahweh. The creator God that made a covenant with the people of Israel. When he brought them out of Egyptian slavery, he gave them lots of different feasts and festivals and special days. And the the purpose of these special days was so that they would know what sort of God is our God. And as we read through John, I hope that what you're figuring out is for us, God is not a generic or abstract idea. For us, when we think of God, we think of Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus is the embodiment of all that God is. And in this section of John, John is helping us to see that Jesus is the embodiment of all of these special days that Israel had to remember who their God was, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Sabbath so that we work and we rest trusting in Jesus. Remember we talked about John 5 a few weeks ago. And then a couple weeks ago we talked about John 6, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Passover, that Jesus is the one like a new Moses leading us out of slavery and giving us bread to eat. The bread is his own flesh. And that by believing in him, we have life. And this morning, we're going to talk about, uh, next week, we'll talk about Hanukkah. I'm excited about that. But this week, we're going to talk about Sukkot. This is a fun word to say, Hebrew word Sukkot. So the, the Feast of, of Tabernacles or Booths, the next slide there shows the picture of a, of a sukkah, a booth. Or a, I thought about building a, a sukkah on stage, but I, I didn't have time to do that. So a picture is going to have to suffice. But, but every year... God told the people of Israel when they came into the promised land, even after they built houses like real physical houses, permanent houses, that they were supposed to, one week a year, were supposed to build a sukkah, a booth, a a hut, a temporary shelter, and dwell in that temporary shelter for a week 
to remember the fact that when God had led them out of Egyptian slavery, that they had wandered. You remember this? They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, and in the wilderness, they lived in these sukkahs, these temporary dwellings, these booths, these huts. And so every year, even after they had permanent houses, they were supposed to build a hut and live in it for a week to remember our God is the kind of God that brought us out of slavery. Our God is the kind of God that protected us and sustained us in the wilderness. Our God is the God who led us in the direction we should go. This is who our God is. And to this day, Jews still build a sukkah and live in it for a week. So so I want us to think about that and, and think about what happened when they got to... So when the Jews came to the promised land, and you know, they didn't actually keep this festival the way they were supposed to. They kept it for the most part, but, but they didn't actually live in the sukkah. And there were a lot of things, unfortunately, that they didn't do that they were supposed to do. And, and you remember what ends up happening. After a few hundred years, they're exiled. And the Assyrian exile and captivity and the Babylonian captivity. And then after a while, they begin to come back to Jerusalem. So you remember during the days of like Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt everything. And they begin to remind themselves about the law. Who is our God? What is it that our God wants of us? What sort of a relationship do we have with our God? And this is significant for you, and you say, I don't want a history lesson. But no, no, it's important because you need to know who is your God? Who is our God? What does it mean for Jesus to embody the God of Israel? And so during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they reminded the people, hey, this is who our God is, and this is what God wants of us. And they reinstituted this Sukkot. They reinstituted the festival of tabernacles. And again, they started living or dwelling in a, in a booth, uh, one week a year. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. Now this takes place, Nehemiah 8, and we'll start in verse 17. This is 400 years before Jesus, but I want us to understand this so that we understand the words of Jesus when we get to John chapter 8. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, All the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, it's the Babylonian captivity, made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So they, they lived in these booths and they reflected on who is our God and what does it mean to be our God's people? What does it mean to be the people with this story? What does it mean to be the people who live in these huts to remember what our God has done for us? And so the next chapter is sort of their reflection after celebrating Sukkot. And so he says, I almost thought about having everybody stand up, but but I I won't do that to you. But he says, stand up. This is verse 5 of chapter 9. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And they reflected on their repentance and how sorry they were that they had broken their covenant with God. Skip down to verse 9. It says, and you saw, God, you saw the affliction 
of our fathers in Egypt. And you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted, that the Egyptians acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided, you remember this, right? You divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And then by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God didn't just take them out of slavery and say, well, good luck, hope you find the promised land. Let me know when you get there. God led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And listen to what it says, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. And remember this, you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. Moses, they were thirsty, right? They wanted water to drink, and Moses hit the rock, and God caused a river of water to flow out of the rock so that the people had something to drink. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Skip down to verse 20. It says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you, the key word, right? And they lacked what? Nothing. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So that's what they were supposed to remember at Sukkot. This is who our God is. God isn't some generic abstract idea. God is the one who sustained us and led us as he broke us out of slavery and we were homeless and hopeless, totally dependent on our God, desperately dependent on our God. We're going to live in booths every year to remind ourselves this is who our God is, that he sustained us in the wilderness and we lacked nothing. So 400 years goes by and they keep celebrating this festival every year to remember when the rain comes down, that's God giving us water for our crops. When the crops grow, that's God giving us food to eat. Our God is a God who provides and sustains and leads us and someday the Messiah will come and he will lead us. So for 400 years, they kept celebrating this and many other festivals. And then Jesus shows up and while this is going on, while they're living in their sukkahs and they're living and thinking about these things or supposed to be thinking about these things, the, leader, the leaders of the Jewish people are actually conspiring to kill Jesus because they don't like the claims that he's making. And so Jesus comes to the feast of Sukkot, but he doesn't do it publicly. He doesn't go down and sort of announce that he's there. He goes into the temple secretly and he begins to teach for several days. And on the last day of the feast, he gets up and he makes some incredibly bold claims that I hope we can see how they connect to this big picture 
story. But before we get there, if you got your Bible, you, you might look and see that John chapter 7, this is kind of a side note, but I think it's something that's important to understand. John 7 through about John 10 and verse 21, that's all part of one section. And it all is sort of revolving around Sukkot. It's all revolving, revolving around the Feast of Booths. But there's this story about a woman caught in adultery. You know, John chapter 8, the beginning of John 8, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says the earliest manuscripts don't have that section. And I think that's a true story. I think that really happened. But I think scholars think that it's probably inserted there because the person who inserted it there didn't know where else to put it. And so they put it there, and we kind of look at the manuscripts and say, well, it probably doesn't go there. And I say that to say that it kind of interrupts the flow of the story. So if you read this afternoon, maybe go and read John 7, and then sort of skip over the beginning of 8 with the woman caught in the adultery and see how it flows right after that. It's a good story, and it's important, and we'll come back to it, but it, it sort of interrupts the flow of what Jesus is saying about himself at Sukkot. So just imagine, Jesus is in the temple, and they're all remembering our God is the one who brought us out of slavery, and he guided us in the wilderness, and he gave us water to drink, and then Jesus gets up, and it says, it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out. Like, he didn't whisper it. He didn't say, hey, come here. I want to tell you a secret. He stands up, and he shouts. He cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, can you see how that's connected to the festival that they're celebrating? Our God is a God who gives water to those who are thirsty in the wilderness. And Jesus says, that's me. If you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, you can see how Jesus is claiming to be the rock in the wilderness. Jesus is claiming to be the one through whom God is going to sustain and give life to his thirsty people. But but again, if you were just there and all of a sudden this dude gets up and he shouts this out about, come to me and drink, you might not understand what he's talking about. And John helps us by saying he said this about the, what? The Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John assumes that his audience, like us, are already familiar with the story, that at some point Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to ascend to the Father's right hand, and he's going to have rule over heaven and earth. And that when that happens, when Jesus is glorified, he's going to pour out his spirit on his people. And John says that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about pouring out the spirit. And when the spirit goes out to the people that are his people, they will not thirst anymore. You know, as I've read through John the last few months and as we've been in Romans on Wednesday nights, And as I've really dug into the New Testament over the last few years, something has occurred to me that didn't occur to me when I was young growing up in the church. I mean, we talked a lot about God, and we talked about Jesus and how Jesus saves us, and we talked about those things, but we didn't give a whole lot of thought to the Spirit of God. But the New Testament teaches over and over and over again that without the Spirit, you cannot live that you can only live by being filled up with the Spirit of God. And we understand, you know, that, that we receive the Spirit when we're baptized, but I loved Quentin's prayer earlier. He, he said in his prayer exactly what Ephesians 5 says. 
Do we realize that Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't get filled up with wine, but be filled up with the, what? The Holy Spirit. Do you know that's a command? Do you know Paul is commanding the people of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, how often do we like intentionally, consciously obey that commandment? Like get up and say, okay, today I'm going to be intentional about being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, would we even know where to begin? But Paul tells us where to begin, doesn't he? It's not mysterious. It's not crazy or kooky. It's things like singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That by participating in praise and worship and making music in our hearts to God and giving thanks to God and submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, we're filled up with the Spirit. This, this coming together on Sundays and then being together on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays, it's participating in the life of God's people, and through God's people, his spirit is poured out into you. And if we're intentional about it, be filled up with the spirit, then we will live. But how many of us are not intentional about that? Oh yeah, we think about God in a generic sense, and we're like, I want to be a good person, and I want to go to heaven someday, and we think about those sort of things in a generic sense, but how many of us realize that without the spirit of God, We are thirsty and dying, and that this time of coming together and spending time with each other and serving each other and loving each other and praising God together, that this is how the Spirit of God is poured out into us and we're filled up with the Spirit. And and even if we do realize that, and you say, yeah, Wes, you're preaching to the choir. We know that already. You know, I'm super intentional about being filled with the Spirit. Great. But what about your neighbors? And what about your family? And what about your coworkers that are dying of thirst in the wilderness? Don't they need to hear that Jesus is the source of living water? Don't they need to hear if you're thirsty, go to him and drink because he gives the living water so that they'll never thirst again? Don't they need that? Don't they need this? Don't they need Jesus? Don't they need the spirit? This is what Jesus is offering not just to me and you, but he's offering to the world. It's God. He's offering us not not God in a generic, abstract sense, but he's offering us the very spirit of God and living in relationship with God so that we never thirst again. Now, skip down to John chapter 8. Again, I think this is all part of the same context. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Does light have anything to do with Sukkot, the festival of booths? Yes, just like water, God gives water to his thirsty people. God guided his people in the wilderness by a pillar of fire to light their way so that they would know which way they should go, Nehemiah 9 and verse 12. So Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God doesn't leave his people to sort of navigate and figure out their way through life. I mean, life can feel like a wilderness, can't it? I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to deal with the people that are around me. I don't know how to deal with my family. I don't know how to deal with my neighbors. I don't know how to deal with my culture. Jesus says, you don't have to go by yourself. 
Just like when all of this multitude of people came out of slavery into the wilderness, God went with them to lead their way and guide their way. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow Jesus. Do we realize that? I mean, we think about Jesus wants to save us, and like we think about being forgiven and having our sins washed away, and that's true. Jesus wants to save you, but he also wants to lead you. Sometimes we want Jesus to save us, but we really don't want to follow Jesus in navigating our life. What does that look like to follow Jesus? Oh, we think about, you know, well, be moral, like don't lie and don't sleep around and don't do this and don't do that. Yeah, it is all of those things. Jesus upheld this, this great ethic and morality, but it's also this radical love. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But even that can seem like abstract, like, okay, yeah, sure, love everybody. That sounds great. I'll do that. What does that look like? Jesus says, follow me. I'm the light of the world. Follow me. I'll show you what that looks like. And it looks selfless. And it looks patient. And it looks kind. And it looks gentle. And it looks self-controlled. Paul says to the Philippian church, he says, listen, have the mind of Christ in yourselves. What does that look like? Consider others, not just to be your equals. Sometimes that would be an improvement, wouldn't it? Just treat people like your equals. But, but no, it's more than that. Consider others as more significant than yourselves. Jesus invites us to follow him as the light leading our way through the wilderness. And he says, Love your neighbor, not just, not just love, love people that love you. Jesus says everybody does that. That's easy, right? Everybody loves them that loves them back, right? Everybody loves like that. Everybody loves the people that are nice to them and kind to them and treat them well. But Jesus says, I want to lead you in a totally different way of being a human. Love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you. Love those that are scornful and spiteful and mean. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and let them slap you on the left. Jesus leads us. The question is, are we following him? See, Jesus wants us to picture, John wants us to picture, Jesus is the God who brings us out of slavery, but not to just navigate life by ourselves, but to guide us. And lead us. And then, like water and manna from heaven, sustain us in the wilderness. Jesus is leading a movement. We talk about movements all the time, you know, like political movements or social movements or cultural movements. Jesus is leading a movement. A new and different, face it, radical way of living your life and being a human being. The question is, are you following him? Jesus is leading and sustaining a movement. Are you a part of it? What does that look like to be a part of the movement that Jesus is leading and sustaining? Well, part of it is being intentional about drinking from the well that is Christ, allowing the Spirit of God to nourish us 
and to, sit, to sustain our life by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, by giving thanks in our heart, by singing and making music, music in our heart to the Lord, by submitting to each other this Christian community being filled with the Spirit of God. And then part of it looks like loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then part of it looks like sharing that with other people. Right? When you're part of a movement, you don't just keep it to yourself. You say, hey, join us. This is a different way. This is a better way of being human. Follow Jesus. Come with us. See what I've seen. Experience what I've experienced. Come with us. This is a new way. This is a better way. And we're always trying to recruit people to our way of eating or our way of driving or our way of voting or our way of whatever. Christians are the kind of people that are always trying to recruit others to Jesus. Because wouldn't the world, we could talk about, well, wouldn't it be great if this law was passed or if this law was passed or if this changed or that changed? I don't know. But what I do know is this. The world would be a better place if more people followed Jesus. Amen? The world would be a better place if you followed Jesus and I followed Jesus and we invited as many people as possible to follow Jesus. I'm excited that we're expanding our building. I'm excited that we're making more room for more people. But let's not wait until that's done to start inviting people. Amen? Let's invite people now. I don't mind preaching three times. I'll preach 12 times if I have to. We'll find more chairs. We'll find more space. Let's invite people. Join us in this movement of following Jesus because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It's what you've experienced, isn't it? It's what you know to be true. So let's share that message with others. Or maybe you haven't experienced that yet, but you're ready to pledge your life to Jesus, to start following him, not just to let him save you. Yes, let him save you, but let him lead you. Maybe you're ready. That's what we do when we're baptized. So we're pledging our obedience and our life to Jesus. Or maybe you've just, just gotten tired. Or maybe you've got a burden that you're trying to carry by yourself. Listen, I wish we knew what all was going on in everybody's life, but nobody here is a mind reader. Nobody can know what's going on in your life or the burden you're carrying or the, the prayers and the help that you need unless you tell us. If you tell us, we can help you. If you don't, we can't. So after service, meet with our shepherds. Let them pray with you or encourage you or help you. Or right now, this is a room full of people who love you, and we want to help you any way we can. So come forward now as we stand and sing this song.